0: I'm Fearless Fred, comic book creator, radio personality, and Dungeon Master extraordinaire. On my podcast, Issue Zero, we'll explore all the things that used to get you beat up in school. From Conan the Barbarian to Wonder Woman, we'll look at the history and future of the fandom universe. So join me as we journey through galaxies far, far away. Issue Zero is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can also find us and listen on demand at CuriousCast.ca.
1: Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, February 4th. We begin with details on a much-needed injection of provincial funds into the treatment of Albertans living with addiction. We'll hear from one organization on how the money will be used.
2: Next, we check in with Reggie Giacchini, Global News National Washington correspondent on President Trump's State of the Union speech taking place Tuesday night. We get Reggie's thoughts on what the president's agenda might be.
1: Then we mark World Cancer Day by taking a look at the progress we've made in fighting the disease over the past several years and hear from one expert who has doubts we'll ever find a true cure.
2: February is Black History Month. We hear about an event that you can take part in at the Central Library honoring Viola Desmond.
1: And we've all heard it before. Millennials are an entitled generation. We get the scoop on a new study that says that's not the case. It's the baby boomers who best fit that description. 642, and here's a good news story. The province is funding up to $4.3 million per year to fund treatment spaces to help with addiction treatment. For what sort of an impact this will have, we're joined by Devin Ruid fraser from the Sunrise Healing Lodge to discuss how it will help Calgarians. Good morning, Devin.
3: Good morning. How are you this morning?
1: Good. I'm sure that any injection of cash is a good thing. Where do you see these monies being used, for example, in your facility?
3: Um, Well, this is a really phenomenal uh, opportunity, and what it does is it opens up doors for us to be able to investigate the possibility of extending services in the future. Um, Historically, treatment centers have run a deficit, and our operational expenses um, have required us to use available capital just to do things like keep the lights on.
2: Talk to us a bit about your facility, the Sunrise Healing Lodge. What, what kind of a building is that, and, and how is this funding going to help you specifically?
3: Yeah, so as, uh, we are a 36-bed uh, drug and alcohol treatment centre in Calgary. Uh, we're an Indigenous agency, and one thing we're really stressing to the community is that we're open to people from all walks of life. So if you're looking for a solution to addiction, um, you're welcome at Sunrise, and we have a program that can help you get clean and sober. Um, The funding, as I said, it's going to allow us to investigate uh, possibilities in the future of creating extended services and undertaking new initiatives to work against the problem of addiction in our city.
1: Where does your facility typically receive funding?
3: Um, We typically receive funding through um, the Alberta government um, uh, and Alberta Health Services, as well as private
4: donors.
2: So what's that money look like specifically for you, Devin? I mean, you know, you see you have someone who comes through the doors and and is needing your service. You've now got this additional money. What will that look like for you as you know, you look towards the next couple of years even?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, of course, this announcement was only made on Saturday. Mm -hmm. So, um, we obviously are just in the initial stages of looking how we will specifically utilize those funds as they come in. Um, but the possibilities are very wide now for us as we move forward in the coming years. But there will be a process to investigate exactly how those funds will be deployed.
1: It's unfortunate, but uh, we're seeing these facilities such as yours getting uh, you know, increased use over the years. Uh, one of those things that you think that uh, your services are not going to go out of fashion anytime soon
3: no absolutely not um and you know our goal is to make every bed in the province available we have far too many people who are still struggling in addiction and as you know this is a very persistent problem in our city today so we're really really happy to be able to continue to offer a solution to those struggling with addiction and to be able to look at furthering those services in the coming years
2: so Devin, is do you think this is a you know a a realization and, and an acknowledgement from the province that this is a serious issue it's not going to go away and that things can be done though to help these people who are living with addictions get past it and get beyond it
3: Absolutely, and I I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a shift in perspective, we're seeing that um, our governments and our communities are starting to wake up and realize that what we need to do is we all need to stand together, we need to build relationships and we need to build bridges between services and bridges in our community, we need to bring our recovery capital together to further uh, our our clients goals of, of finding long term lasting recovery.
1: One of the things you mentioned was, you know, having every uh, bed utilized in the province that we can. So I'm wondering if you can expand on the relationship you have with other recovery centres across the province. Is that something that you reach out and and have some sort of a network uh, with?
3: Absolutely. So one thing that we're really trying to let the community know, um, as a recovery community, we're standing hand in hand. So all of our centres across Alberta, we're engaged in conversation, we're engaged in dialogue, and we're working to stand side-by-side, hand-in-hand, we need to hold the line against the problem of addiction. And this problem is not just going to go away, but we do have a solution.
2: What do you say to people who might think, you know, why do we just keep pumping money into this when, you know, people need to just fend for themselves and deal with this?
3: Um, you know, when I look at the, the disease of addiction, because we know that this is in fact a disease, any other disease in our province, we have help available for. And I think that addiction should be no different than any other disease in our, in our province, where if someone is sick, we give them the help they need.
1: Well, thanks uh, for your time this morning, Devin. We appreciate it.
3: No problem at all. Thank you so much. It's great to have been here.
1: Devin Ruud-Fraser, marketing director for Sunrise Healing Lodge. 9.09 on the morning news. It will be Donald uh, Trump's official State of the Union dress uh, address, rather uh, his third, as a matter of fact, during his presidency, taking place tonight at 7 o'clock Calgary time. It happens to also be following, uh, falling rather, the night before the Senate will render its verdict on his impeachment trial. Very interesting timing. Joining us with his thoughts is Reggie Cicchini, Global National Washington Correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Well, what can we expect? Because it seems like a very interesting time for Donald Trump to be doing this State of the Union Address uh, with all going on
5: absolutely it is and you can imagine that the president was hoping he might have been able to take a victory lap either during his Fox News interview that happened during the Super Bowl or uh, tonight being able to uh, you know address the nation as a quote-unquote exonerated president but he's not able to do that that vote is not going to take place until tomorrow so the president you know really needs to kind of wade these waters and either speak as if he's trying to lay out his either re-election campaign talk about his past uh, kind of legislative accomplishments or potentially wade into this kind of constitutional battle that's been weighing in the in in the uh, in the senate now for the last month or so and it's going to be you know one of those moments where we have to see if the president sticks to script or if he starts to go off the cuff and you know starts to ignore the prompter that's sitting in front of him
2: that's always when it gets interesting though
5: absolutely it is and it's when the president is kind of at his peak it's when the president you know it's when 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 in a moment all of a sudden turns into a kind of stump speech as opposed to uh kind of that historical moment to try and bring the nation together and talk about whether or not he sees the state of the union as being good bad or strong
1: is there a chance he won't reference november do you think there's any chance that donald trump will not be running in the next election
5: Oh, absolutely. I think the president is going to be bringing up November. I think he's going to include most of the things he's trying to lay out in the, in the election campaign tonight. The kind of, we can look at this as a possible bit of framework for him to say how he wants to deal with security, how he wants to deal with foreign policy, how he wants to be able to deal with continuing this economic growth that's really been spurred, you know, in, in, in the administration before him, but has kind of kept up pace through the Donald Trump years now. So it would be, um, I believe it probably would be a mistake for for the president to not kind of lay out what his legislative goals are for the year and for the potential next four years if he would uh, win again in November because he has such a strong base of his that will be tuned in watching this tonight.
2: And Reggie, speaking of that, he's up tweeting a storm already today. His approval rating, says Donald Trump and the Republican Party, 95%, a record. Uh, big win, Iowa, he said, approval rating overall at 53%, a new high. Are those numbers accurate?
5: Well, I mean, you always have to take the numbers that the president gives with a grain of salt. Sure, he has high numbers inside the Republican Party, but it's because he's also the leader of the Republican Party and you don't really want to go against your leader Mm -hmm. and really don't want to go against Donald Trump. But he has a national rating right now that's somewhere sitting around 43 or 44 percent. It's the highest it's been in the last couple of months. It's not anywhere near being 50 percent and his win last night in Iowa, he's taking these big kind of circles, saying how great the win was for him. He essentially is running alone in here and there are two other people that are running against him polling less than one percent they've the trump campaign has made an effort to push anybody else out of the republican race so it was kind of a gimme win for him yesterday but nonetheless he's taking the victory and walking with it
1: this isn't the first for a president either is it as far as going through an impeachment process and standing in front of the nation with the state of the union is it
5: no, this is what happened with Bill Clinton uh, 20-ish years ago in 1999. He was going through the trial. He didn't bring it up during his State of the Union, and he actually saw his numbers start to rise in the days before and days after the State of the Union. So this could potentially be something for the president, but we always have to remember the impeachment trial against Bill Clinton was very different and for very different circumstances than what the president is under right now. And there is still a growing support, uh, for, or uh, rather a growing number of people who are are against what the president did, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's different to look at how it was with Bill Clinton, but there is at least some precedent for a president to be giving that uh, address to the nation while being impeached.
2: So what do we expect for tonight? Is this just a way to pump up the troops kind of thing, or, you know, is, does it change any minds? I can't imagine that it changes anything more than the past few years have.
5: No, the president's likely not going to uh, change anybody's minds. They've been crystallized for, for years now. And I think this is just going to be that opportunity for the president to either sit in the room that just impeached him six weeks ago and either bring the troops together to say, look, the country's doing well right now. We need to work together. Let's get over this quote unquote hoax and try to get back onto this legislative agenda that's been stalled for the last couple of years. Or he's going to go off script and this is going to become one of those fire and fury moments that we saw at the inauguration. As we keep saying with this president, you have to expect the Expected and sometimes that unexpected is really what was expected
1: and i'm wondering uh, in washington is it is uh i'm not making light of it is it like a sporting event to a certain extent do people get together to watch the state of the uh, uh, union address
5: People do. Yeah. Bars actually put out uh, drink lists that may have kind of clever names for the cocktails that they're serving that night. You know, there's a lot of people who just kind of sit around and watch and, you know, they'll you know pull out the little juvenile games and they'll play drinking games depending on what the president has to say. It's kind of one of those moments (laughs) that brings the entire country together, despite the fact whether you're for or against the president, simply to hear what the president has to say. And then you can interpret that your own way.
2: Reggie, expecting any kind of bombshells at all tonight.
5: I don't think so. I mean, the president, his people have said that this is going to be a a, a speech of optimism and a speech to try and say, welcome to this kind of America that's been continuing to grow and will continue to grow. I think where we should pay attention to is when it comes to foreign policy, how the president talks about the kind of death of of, uh, Iran's General Soleimani, how he depicts that situation and what he does when it comes to talking about North Korea. He says that he wants this to continue, this this friendship, this love that he has with Kim Jong-un. So it'll be interesting to see because we haven't heard the president on foreign policy outside of Iran now for the last month and you know what's kind of been going on inside his head, what his speechwriters are thinking. Uh, these are going to be the important ones to talk because we know what the president feels about domestic issues and particularly when it comes to security at the border.
1: We have 30 seconds, uh, Reggie, and just want to let you know we're going to be uh, checking with Jackson Proskow in a couple minutes about the The Iowa caucus and the end result, the concrete, oh wait, not so concrete (laughs) end result. Uh, Your quick thoughts on that?
5: I mean, look, the Iowa caucuses are an antiquated way of trying to be able to collect a vote, and I think this may give some kind of thought for the state to figure out maybe it's time to move into the primary process. But at the end of the day, the fact that we're still looking for results and most people are still sitting at 0%, we've heard the chairs from Iowa say that, look, we're going to try to make sure that we're doing this methodically. We're not going to race through, but I think that's just an answer uh, and, and a response to say we kind of dropped the ball on this and we're trying to put pieces together now to make it look like we actually know what we're doing. Well,
2: thanks for joining us, Reggie, and have fun- that you're drinking games tonight. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Reggie Cicchini, Global Nationals Washington correspondent. 710, World Cancer Day is today. It aims to save millions of preventable deaths each year by raising awareness and education about cancer and pressing governments and individuals across the world to take action against the disease. To talk about how far we've come, we're joined this morning by Phoebe Day, VP of Communications and Marketing at the Alberta Cancer Foundation. Morning, Phoebe. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. We have come a long way. I mean, the you know, just in, in terms of being able to diagnose and treat, but so far left to go still, isn't there?
4: There sure is. And, and I can say that I've been with the Alberta Cancer Foundation for 10 years, and the advancements I've seen uh, during that time are pretty remarkable. I think when I started, there was one specific cancer, uh, melanoma, for instance, where the survival rates was less than 20%, and since I've been there, because it seems like immunotherapy, they've, they've increased to over 60% in that amount of time. So lots of progress has been made, and, but as you said, certainly a long way to go.
1: The thing about cancer, and I think that you uh, probably see this in your line of work, is we all know somebody who has cancer who, or who had cancer, and it affects families, coworkers. It, it seems to touch everyone.
4: Absolutely, in Alberta, one in one in two Albertans will be diagnosed with with cancer in their in their lifetime. So it's a it's a huge number. It's uh, you can't go very far without hearing personal stories, and and we're using World Cancer Day to help some of those families. We're launching a campaign around our patient financial assistance program because while uh, we're a fundraising organization, we support the Tom Baker Cancer Center here in in Calgary and the Cross Cancer in, in Edmonton and the 15 other cancer centers, and find a lot of research and treatment and care, but want to also make sure that families when they're diagnosed with cancer don't have to worry about making ends meet or being able to buy groceries. A lot of people have to um, take Leave the absences from work. So, we're, we're launching our patient financial assistance program today on World Cancer Day to, to make sure that we can help those Albertans.
2: We'll talk a little further about your campaign coming up. But, you know, if you can look at sort of how cancer treatment is today, even cancer funding today, how do we, how can we sort of look back at maybe, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago and how it compares to today? Are we doing it much better? Do we still need to keep having these events that we, you know, a run that raises money for this cancer and that cancer? Are those still vital?
4: They are. I think what we find is that um, people give in ways that are important to them. So there are, are people who like to hop on a bike and ride for two, two days over 200 kilometers, or there's some that want to walk in and make a gift um, uh, you know, at the cancer centers because they're grateful patients who received excellent care at one of them. But uh, we still need uh, these dollars to be able to fund research to make that progress. We have clinical trials, for instance, in this province that were a little bit of a hidden gem. Where it's one of the best programs in Canada, and we're we're finding new options that are changing the way we change or that we treat cancer, not just here in Alberta but around the world. and And while um, you know there there's a lot of support. Given to the, the cancer centers, the researchers need more. We need to be able to continue to raise funds and, and make that difference and, and find those discoveries that are, are going to find the, the, the next best way to treat uh, cancer.
1: You mentioned the re- uh, research in our province, but what about all resources? How do we stack up uh, across the rest of the nation in our province and, for that matter, across the world?
4: I think that we've got some of the best talent here in Alberta, and we get in, in my team and in the communications and marketing team, we get on our sharing some of those stories that, that are changing the way that we treat cancer around the world. So, uh, in terms of funding, I think researchers would always say that they could use more. Uh, we also support the, the, as I said, the cancer center, so making sure that we're creating one of the best programs in the in the country. But yeah, we we are. We are in a good place. We always say you never want to be diagnosed with cancer, but if you have to be in Alberta, you'll be well taken care of and and very well treated.
2: You know, Phoebe, we've talked about, you know, the advancements and the great strides that we have certainly made. But do you think, do you really believe personally we're we're ever at the point where we'll find a cure for cancer or, or some cancers that will be cured completely? Well, I think
4: that uh, we wrestle with the word cure all the time. There are 200 different cancers, so they're all being treated differently. And I would say that there are some cancers that we've learned that we find that, if you're if you're if it's caught early if it's diagnosed early you have a 99 percent chance of, of success or of, I guess if it's of, of a cure, but I think that in the in the long term hope is we always say if we could work ourselves out of a job that would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. But if I think the idea is that even if people are living with cancer and we're treating people with cancer for the rest of their lives, then that's okay too. The the cure is that elusive thing that everyone's you know you know talks about but with the 200 different types of cancer it's impossible to get one cure and and the advancements that have been made in, in the last 10 years the last you know couple decades have been incredible
1: let's talk more about the support programs that you have available for the families and those folks who are new into the cancer world if you will and the new program you're launching uh, is it today
4: It is, and it's not a a new program. It's our patient financial assistance program. It's been going on probably for about 10 years, but we've just found that the need has really been increasing in the last couple of years. I think with the downturn in the economy a couple of years ago, we're seeing that what we're hearing from social workers is that they're used to dealing with vulnerable uh, populations, maybe financially vulnerable, but what they've seen is a, a, a real growth in, patients and families that had savings and were having to deplete them maybe it was a mortgage broker or a um, caterer or contracts were starting to dry up a little bit and then on top of that were diagnosed with cancer and uh, some people might not have critical illness insurance some might have to take uh, leave of absence from work and they were hearing terrible stories about how some patients would not choose life-saving treatment options because they couldn't afford to leave work for it, or having to dip into their savings to be able to travel to a city for for treatment. So, last year we funded uh, just over one million dollars for patients and families. It's all donor-supported. We raise money for it completely, um, but it, that need is increasing ten percent every year, and it goes toward things like mortgage payments. Uh, and It's a temporary program. Uh, temporary relief but it can cover mortgage payments child care payments travel if someone has to travel to calgary from uh lethbridge or tabor or wherever for for treatment and and uh we want people to be able to concentrate on getting well and healing rather than worrying about how they're going to make ends meet
2: well your website is a great place for resources whether it supports the campaign itself anything and everything you need to find out it's albertacancer.ca thanks for joining us phoebe Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Phoebe Day is the VP of Communications and Marketing for the Alberta Cancer Foundation.
1: 719 on the morning news. So while we continue... Uh, to try to solve the problem known as cancer with fundraisers, research teams and institutions dedicated to the cause is there a possibility we may never find a true cure? That's the thought of at least one research expert joining us now to discuss is Dr. Alan Castles co-author of Selling Sickness, how the world's biggest pharmaceutical companies are turning us all into patients and seeking sickness, medical screening and the misguided hunt for disease. Dr. Castles is a University of Victoria researcher and contributor to the Pharmaceutical uh, Journal. Good morning Dr. Castles How are you? Good. Uh, It is uh, World Cancer Day, so we're focusing on the topic on our program and bringing you the the question straight up here. Uh, Why can't we find a cure for cancer?
0: (laughs) I'm not sure we I mean, I think we've made some progress, uh, uh, you know, in In terms of um, uh, an actual cure, though, I mean, cancer is such a a multi-factored sort of thing. You know, there's many kinds of cancers. There's many, uh, um, you know, um, theories about what, what causes it and so on. I think, you know, we've made some progress and the whole cancer war, I think, is the, most of the progress has been on prevention, you know. So, you know, in the last, say, 30 years, the biggest contributor to reducing the cancer rate has been uh, people not smoking. It mm-hmm. uh, has nothing to do with the health care system. has everything to do with, uh, you know, social norms, policies about smoking in buildings and all that kind of stuff, right? So... You know we're we're making progress in some areas, but you know when you look at sort of the research world around drugs uh, for uh, to treat people that actually have cancer, you know it's it's really a kind of um, a very disappointing scene because a lot of the newer drugs and of course the industry has been investing very heavily in, in drug research to treat cancer. Lots of new drugs, very expensive drugs almost no benefits to some of these drugs as well so uh, you you know you have to sort of go into this with your eyes wide open.
2: Doctor, conspiracy theorists would say there is a cure. There are drugs that can cure cancer or to a greater degree than what we have right now but there's more money in the business of trying to cure cancer. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah I, I don't think I'd buy into that conspiracy. I think you know most of us in our lives are going to be touched by cancer I think there's a, a, a heck of a lot of you know sincere interest in trying to reduce the rate of cancer, uh, and I don't think that <laughs> you know I I, I don't think uh, companies are interested in keeping cancer rates high so that they can make lots of money. That doesn't make sense to me.
1: But as far as, uh, you know, uh, you and I back and forth, you were talking about we've had great success uh, in rodents curing cancer, but uh, that does not translate to humans, is that right? <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, and I, I look at the headlines a lot, you know, especially with the pharmaceutical research. And, yeah, you know, you'll often see, you know, um, drug X, you know, cure, cure, is, a, is a potential cure. And you start reading the article, realize, well, they tested this in half a dozen mice uh, or in rats. Um, we joke in our in our office that they've cured cancer in rodents many times over. Um, you know, it's really the difficulty of translating basic research into humans, and that's much more difficult. Uh, the other thing, too, about a lot of the sort of newer um, uh, cancer treatments is that they may you know, prolong life by several months or, uh, you know, half a year or so on. But sometimes those drugs also really reduce the quality of your life, mm-hmm. so you, uh, you, you really have a, a trade-off. You might live a little bit longer taking some of these cancer drugs, but your life is going to be much more miserable because of the side effects.
1: Well, thanks for your thoughts this morning. We appreciate it. Okay. Dr. Alan Castles, a University of Victoria researcher and contributor to the Pharmaceutical Journal.
2: With racism on the rise around the world, Black History Month, more important than ever, recognizing the history of systemic injustice, celebrating community response, and honoring current and past activists. Joining us this morning on The Morning Show, Sharon Stevens, Executive Director of Alberta Media Arts Alliance Society, talking about a wonderful campaign to spread the story of Viola Desmond and how she made such an impact on our country. Good morning, Sharon morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Talk to us. Tell us a little bit about the story of Viola Desmond. We might know her from the $10 bill, but that might be all we know about her.
6: Well, certainly uh, Viola Desmond um, was what a lot of people consider to be Canada's Rosa Parks. Um, So she was one of the first Black Canadians who stood up against racism. Um, and this was in uh, Nova Scotia in a theater in 1946, where Viola Desmond did not sit in the black-only section. She had enough money to pay for the whites-only section, so she felt that she had every right to sit there, and she did. Um, but of course, that resulted in her being arrested.
1: Sure, this was uh, 70 years ago, Sharon, but uh... Is there a certain sense that we're Canadians and uh, this shouldn't have happened in the first place? I think we think that racism happens in other places.
6: That is very true. And um, part of what this campaign is about is to acknowledge that racism does definitely still exist in our um, systemically and um, within, even within the film industry, um, portrayal of of, uh, black and people of color um, are often not... Um, as positive as white people so it is systemic um, it is it can be subtle um, but it is also still very overt
2: and her story is one that we need to share particularly today and it's just as important so what is happening here in Calgary in order to spread the word and the story of Viola Desmond and what she uh, did eventually accomplish
6: well, we are saving a seat for Viola. Um, and by that, I mean in, um, in Edmonton and in Calgary, um, we've got a, a, a likeness of her, a stand-up likeness, and she is um, nestled into a seat in um, participating theatres uh, here in our city. And um, we're also handing out bookmarks identifying um, her story. And there's a, um, a, a minute, um, a Heritage Minute that mm-hmm. will be screened uh, as well to identify her story so she'll be in the theater basically
1: viola desmond we know that name but a name that i've uh, done a little bit of reading on on some of the literature your organization has released is is charles daniels and it's a it's also uh, attached to a theater can you tell us about charles's story
6: well, Charles is actually in um, a story out of Calgary. Now, this was 1914, um, but his story is very similar. And this was in the Grand Theatre, uh, which is on First Street Southwest. So um, he was refused a seat in the whites-only section. He sued for damages, and he won. Back in
1: 1914.
2: That's right. That's amazing. And a wonderful piece of our own Calgary history, again, that I, I'm sure a lot of people don't really know about. So, I mean, th- I think that's what's great about the library, particularly what is happening at our beautiful new downtown library. All the great stories and information that you're managing to share to people who otherwise might not have really ever heard of these names.
6: Absolutely. We're very proud of this campaign. We started it last year, and there's more uptake um, again this year. So, it's it's a really um, exciting campaign for sure.
1: Well, again, we are very excited about this. It travels beyond our city as well. Uh, the tour continues uh, for, for how long and, and how many cities are, are going to be included?
6: Uh, well, it'll be until the end of this month. Um, and it's in Lethbridge and Edmonton and uh, four locations in Calgary.
2: And how do we find more information if people want to get all the details? You
6: can go to the Alberta Media Arts Alliance website and that is amas.ca,
1: C A A M A A S dot C-A. Thank you. Sharon, thanks for your time this morning. You bet. Sharon Stevens, Executive Director of Alberta Media Arts Alliance Society.
2: Science says boomers are the real snowflake generation. The longest ever study on intergenerational narcissistic traits finds that millennials are actually not as sensitive and self-absorbed as boomers are. One of the authors of the study is William Chopik, assistant professor of social and personality psychology at Michigan State University. He joins us this morning. Morning, William. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here with us. So, I mean, really, is the bottom line here, we've been blaming millennials for being so self-absorbed when really it's the boomers who are?
7: (laughs) Well, I think there's been this major fixation on comparing generations. And I think a lot of times we do blame younger generations inappropriately. So when in reality, when you look at how these people change and how they grow up and how they change in their narcissism, they're actually not that much different than you know, older generations. So we have been focusing too much on labeling them as snowflakes.
1: What was the spark behind this study, William?
7: Well, we looked at basically how narcissism varied across different generations, but then we were concerned also with um, how it changed across the lifespan. So a lot of people just assume, hey, if you're born a narcissist, you are always going to be a narcissist. But in reality, just like a lot of other things that happen to you, they change you. You have a first job, you get married, you have children. And it looks like, indeed, when you follow people over time, they do become a little less narcissistic.
2: Can you define for us the narcissistic traits that you're referring to? Sure. So we examined a few in this
7: study. So one, for example, was a hypersensitivity uh, type of narcissism. So this is where you're really sensitive to criticism. You're sort of brittle. Your self-esteem really hinges on um, what you think about yourself. And then there's sort of a willfulness type of narcissism? Do you think you can enact change in the world? Um, more of a full, you know, grandiose, full of yourself type of narcissism. And then there's autonomy. Basically, do you think you have control over situations? So we looked at how all these different facets of narcissism tend to change over time.
1: So, so to back things up, when it comes to narcissism, uh, you, it's not black and white. You can have narcissistic traits, but not be a flat-out narcissist.
7: Exactly. Or I'm sure you can appreciate this too. There's different parts of narcissism. Sometimes it's it's good to be a little full of yourself. It might benefit you to build up that confidence, especially if you're in an uncertain situation. But then there's also some really toxic parts of narcissism. So it's a little more complicated than people realize where there's different types of narcissism that affect your life.
2: What surprised you most, William, as a researcher, when you when you started seeing all this sort of information rolling in?
7: I think the most surprising thing is just how much people change narcissism over time. Um, It's generally the case case that people age out of it, so they become more mature, responsible, considerate of other people, Um, and they're not really narcissists by the time they're middle-aged. You know, there's a lot of different changes, so some people change a lot. You know, they're a dramatically different person, and other people don't really change at all, so there are some people who will be very narcissistic uh, their whole life, but the really surprising thing is just how much people changed.
1: Do you think that the media, both traditional and social media, has something to do with this and it kind of perpetuates these stereotypes that we put on the different generations?
7: Definitely. I think if you go back to even writings in Greece, you know, ancient Greece, you find that people have lamented how terrible or selfish or narcissistic young generations are. And you know, it's a really easy story to write or a really easy stereotype to to fall into, but You know, if you just wait a little bit, people become less narcissistic. And when you do some actual comparisons of the different generations using appropriate methods and measures, you see that they're not all that different from each other.
2: Is this a little redemption for millennials, do you think, who've been uh, really kind of taking it on the chin for the past little bit?
7: (laughs) Well, I don't mean to be a millennial apologist, but I do think they get a little unfair coverage. So, yeah, the hope is that it kind of normalizes that You know, a lot of young people are like this. If you ask baby boomers, if you ask, you know, Generation X, a lot of them were narcissistic when they were younger. Um, But, you know, they all sort of age out of it. So, you know, younger generations, I guess, are taking it out of the chin now. Um, But in fact, they do age out of it. So um, I don't know if this is a redemptive arc for millennials, Hmm. but um, hopefully it, it sets some minds at ease that this isn't a permanent lifelong thing for them.
1: What has a reaction been from your standpoint to the study? Have you had people saying, "Wow, I, I did not know that!" Uh, great work, or have you had some people debating you on these points, William?
7: Uh, I think both. So I think there is an appreciation of people change over time. You know, especially when people start working for the first time, they get humbled. Mm-hmm. Um, they start dating. They have to, you know, take other people's considerations into account. You have to remember other people's birthdays, the things that they like, and to be nice <laughs> to them. All of these things you know, change you and they make you a more mature person. So I think when you talk to people like that, they're like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, But then, like you say, this stereotype is really easy to to go into. So um, some people are kind of denying it so that generations are really dramatically different. Um, You know, the younger generations are saying, you know, finally there's a study coming out that doesn't paint us as bad guys. Um, So you, you see that oftentimes the reaction differs on, by how old people are. Yeah. But I think there's a general consensus that, yeah, the things that happen to us might change what we think about ourselves.
2: I mean, really, let's. I think it's young people at the time, they're young of any generation, really. It's just growing out of their narcissistic tendencies is a sign of growing up then. Does that seem to be what it is?
7: Yeah, exactly. You know, if, if you think young people are so narcissistic, the key is to just wait. Um, you know, they're going to experience so many things that uh, changes who they are and what they think about themselves. And part of being an adult in the world is being able to be a little less narcissistic in, you know, whether it be work context or relational one.
1: Well, thanks for your time this morning, William. Thanks so much for having me. William Chopik, Assistant Professor of Social and Personality Psychology at Michigan State University.
8: So you're ready to adapt to a ketogenic diet to lose weight and improve your health. You've come to the right place. i lost 26 pounds and I have eaten bread single day. Demand for vegan food is driving restaurant chains to adopt more meat and dairy-free options.
0: I've heard some people were surprised to learn that I've been living Atkins for years.
8: Diets can help us lose weight, look better, and if we're lucky, feel better. But can they help us work better? And how many of us even think about how what we put in our bodies impacts our job performance? It's really a mixed bag. We see lots of people who are really concerned and they're making their lunch the night before
7: and they're very thoughtful about it. But there's an equally large group of people who are just really busy sometimes they actually don't know like they don't know and understand what would be a good choice to make so they just kind of give up and grab
8: things. Heidi Bates is a registered dietitian at the University of Alberta and says in her experience at least 50 percent of us give no thought and make no connection between what we eat and how we perform. The obvious exception is professional athletes
7: spoils the shutout
1: bid. My diet's evolved a lot uh, over the years, but um, y- you start to learn what works for you. And, uh, you know, I've read a lot on it. And, you know, the literature changes, I feel like, uh, since I, in the last 10 years or so, since I've been playing. You just try and pick up little things everywhere you go and try to figure out what works for you particularly.
8: Sam Gagne has spent the better part of 14 seasons in the NHL with stops in Arizona, Philadelphia, Columbus, Vancouver, and Edmonton. His job, like most of ours, requires him to be alert at all times. Times and for him that means paying close attention to both what and when he eats. For
1: myself, I always find that if I get as many carbs as I can post game, I tend to, to respond a lot better. During the day, I'll, I'll you know limit carbs a little bit more, and then around my training, you add some more into it. And not only you're uh, you know expending a lot of energy playing the game, but there's you know the, the stress factor of uh, you know you're thinking about it all day, all that kind of stuff, and you got to try and get as many nutrients as you can uh, post game to, to make sure you're recovered for the next day.
8: That may seem a little detailed for what you might assume are your daily requirements to both remain healthy and perform well at your job. So while the very granular diet plan of a professional athlete may not be completely relatable, some things are. For an office worker um, who's a bit more sedentary, you want to avoid that two o'clock slump where you're, you're kind of lethargic. For chef Lisa Lindquist, that two o'clock slump is something that can easily be avoided with just a little forethought. So you want something balanced. So something like leftovers from your uh, dinner from the night before is a really easy one because it requires almost no no effort. So a good example of that would be a chicken stir fry where you get your uh, protein and your veggies and maybe a bit of rice or something as well so you get a nice balanced meal. Don't work in an office, no set hours, no problem. So a construction worker, the challenge with them is that they might not have access to a microwave to be able to use the leftovers so but using a thermos you can bring that and bring a big thermos full of hot chili and then you get a lot of protein there as well and then packing snacks throughout the day, healthy um, snacks like you can bring beef jerky and some grapes or something for an afternoon snack. We know it works. Eat better. Feel better, work better. Sounds simple, right?
5: What did you pack for lunch today? Uh, I didn't pack lunch today. I ordered in. Uh, today I did not pack lunch, but I did go out for lunch. What'd you get? Wendy's. And how does that make
0: you
1: feel? Good. It was a uh, chicken burger. <laughs> it was pretty good. Nothing. <laughs> and so what did you have for lunch today? Or uh, Granola bar. <laughs> if you're feeling sluggish in the afternoon, does that dawn on you, like... Oh, okay, I know why. Oh, hugely. I know if I haven't had lunch yet, I can start feeling myself making more rash, snap decisions, Uh, or if it's late and then suddenly I'm a little more tired come 3 or 4 o'clock, then uh, I can definitely
5: figure out why. Do you have any times during the day when you might feel better or worse? Late afternoons is definitely worse. Sometimes get tired. Probably better in the morning and then a little bit more sluggish after 2 o'clock. Do you ever think about how what you're eating impacts your job performance?
4: Probably sometimes.
5: Really? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) So do you ever make the connection
3: between like that and how you're doing at work, how you're feeling, how you're performing? I
7: should. I've never really thought about that, and I will ponder that probably now forever.
8: So we know we should, and we know it works. Why not take the next step? Plan tomorrow's meals today. Cater them to your shift and the physical or mental requirements of your job. And thank us later when your boss compliments you on a job well done.